Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Herman, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event in association with Humanities West. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our online and radio audiences. It's my great pleasure to introduce Patty Trimble, who is the poet involved here, and her team of performers. Um, And I'm going to give you a little bit of information about each of them. Patty Trimble appreciates poetry best when it is spoken in community. She has performed, often with musicians, in numerous venues in the USA and Europe. Her poems are performed in Italy in translation. She has three spoken word CDs, most recently with Peter Whitehead. Um, Her writing is widely published with awards from the Lannan Foundation, Poets and Writers, Jesserai Foundation, Adirondack Review, and a Pushcart nomination. She co-founded Tulumni Poetry Festival in Yosemite, writes for the San Francisco Ethnic Dance Festival, and teaches workshops. Peter Whitehead is a composer, performer, songwriter, and instrument builder. He performs solo and creates scores for film, television, radio, and dance, including for Mikhail Baryshnikov, Susan Marshall, Anna Halperin, Charles Moulton, and Sarah Shelton, Man and Contraband. His music is available online and from Out of Round Records. He is also a painter and a photographer. His most recent project is a book of photographs of Treasure Island. Julia Norton is uh, an award-winning singer, actor, composer, and storyteller who has also spent the last 20 years teaching others how to use their whole voice. Her podcast, Dark and Twisty Tales, combines grim folktales with improvised song. Her album, Lullaby Island, mixes Celtic-style vocals, traditional lullabies, and Victorian poems set to music. And Maya Hosla is a wildlife biologist and is currently serving as the Poet Laureate of Sonoma County from 2018 to 2020. Her poems have been nominated for Pushcart Prizes and featured in the Literary Review, River Teeth, Poem, and other journals. Her books are All the Fires of Wind and Light, new from 16 Rivers Press, Web of Water, Life in Redwood Creek, a guidebook, Keelbone, which won the Dorothy Brunsman Poetry Prize, and a chapbook, Heart of the Tearing, Tearing from Red Dust Press. In other words have a, a real treat for poetry, music, and performance tonight, and I hope you all enjoy it. Hi. <laughs> I'm going to uh, start just um, talking about this piece just for five minutes so you have a little background on it. So the Odyssey, I think everyone here knows this, but um, Odyssey is a spoken epic from about 1200 B.C., written down in the 8th century BCE, uh, and saying it aloud takes 30 hours, and Penelope uh, doesn't hardly exist in it. Um, and yet I'm, we're doing this piece about Penelope. Uh, from from Penelope's lives, though life, we, though we do get some idea of lives and social status of women in Bronze Age societies, women of high rank mostly remained in the home. They were sold off and tra- or traded off at puberty, and in war they were taken as slaves. Emily Wilson, who wrote the most recent translation of the Odyssey, which is really great, actually, um, said P- Penelope's primary characteristic is is opaqueness. That's not much of a characteristic. <laughs> um, but what's interesting is that in spite of that, um, uh, well, I'll read a little bit more here, but um, historians say Bronze Age women had no relation to poetry and were not permitted to engage in public self-advertising. But actually, we collectively have made Penelope over the last 3,000 years, and now she's a collage created by thousands of storytellers and writers. Books, poems, academic articles on minuscule things about Penelope, about her weaving, about the meaning of her name, her slaves, at what exact point she recognizes Odysseus, and if she really waited. (laughs) This revision uh, teases Penelope out. I began with a few quotes from ancient Greece and Rome. And then, since I'd already jumped ahead a thousand years, uh, if you think, you know, 1200 B.C. to Rome, it's a long time. Um, I decided any uh, any date was fine to steal stuff from. So this piece includes quotes from uh, Homer, of course, from Ovid, Hesiod, Homeric Hems, Socrates, Judith Butler, Maggie Nelson, Euripides, Sophocles, James Joyce, Virginia Woolf, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and a few academic writers. Just little pieces. With songs by Tim Buckley, Leonard Cohen, Imelda May, and a C- the Sikolos epitaph, which is um, the oldest piece of classical music that we have intact. And it was from, uh, it's a Greek piece from the first or second uh, century AD. 
Um, if you hear some kind of odd image and it's just kind of weird, it came from the Odyssey. <laughs> and it's funny, you know, while I was writing this, I kept thinking, because I would remember things, I kept thinking, wait a minute, was that true? Let me check. And the answer was always yes. Every word. It's all true. I struggled most of all with Penelope's voice um, because I felt bound by her silence. She was really silenced in the Odyssey. I let her speak uh, more openly um, when I believed we shared our experiences. I have seven sisters, and sometimes I thought of them. To quote Molly Bloom, This poem muddles persona with lived experience. It's not unlike a contrapuntal, two histories working together to reimagine autonomy where it did not once seem to exist. And also, uh, if the Bronze Age people had a sense of humor, I never found it. (laughs) And that might be because I'm a woman. I I started thinking maybe it was the gruesome killing scenes. Gruesome killing scenes. Gruesome killing scenes. That might have been funny. I don't know. It's hard to say. Anyway, um, the characters that I name in here, in case you don't know, Athena is the goddess of war. She guides Odysseus home. Phemius is the bard. Telemachus is uh, Penelope and Odysseus's son. Tiresias is the blind seer. And um, we're going to speak six poems with music. There's some really beautiful music in these, in these, and we're going to pause at the end of each poem, but if you could hold your applause, it'd be great, because then we could just carry on with it. Um, this is a collaborative production. Julia and Peter and I shaped the music and the words kind of together with a lot of trial and error. And then I'm going to give you a really, really quick uh, rundown on the Odyssey so you understand some of the references. It's very quick. On his way home from the ten-year Trojan War, Odysseus, heroic king of Ithaca, curses Poseidon's son, and the gods send him off course. The sorceress Circe transforms his men into pigs. Beautiful Calypso detains him for seven years. He encounters monsters, goes to the underworld for guidance, loses the faith of his men, loses his men and his ship, and floats alone naked and nameless to an island near his home, where he's found by a virgin and a king escorts him home. Penelope, his wife, waits for twenty years, fends off suitors for four of them, young, insolent men, who believe Odysseus is dead. She and Odysseus have one son, Telemachus, who in the Odyssey is twenty. Odysseus reaches home. He and Telemachus kill the suitors and hang 12 girl slaves who'd been consorting with them. He reunites with his wife and then prepares to set off again. The story has been seen as a geography lesson, a psychological tale of a man lost after war brought home by female archetypes, and a program of rules, justifications for behavior, giving gifts and friendly welcomes, and violent behavior if strangers don't welcome you or when your property and position are compromised. Now we begin. There are so many ways to tell a lie. You can lie by ignoring whole regions of impact, omitting the most crucial information. You can write euphemisms for violence. You can say you're telling a story when what you're really doing is inventing civilization. And in myth... Falsehood is obligatory. Lies round out the possibilities. So the bard, Phemius, sings of a man who could adapt to anything. And he wants to teach us to classify man and woman, friend and invader, husband and beast, good wife and bad. He repeats until we understand. Remember, we're just getting the knack of story. This is prehistory our first understanding that language is power and words can be used to invent us. I mean, it really is amazing. If I say the blue sea, you will see it. The word weep makes an indentation in history. Penelope weeps every night as the sign of a faithful wife. The men also weep and wail, but they are told, dry your tears, get on with it. Build civilization today. So sing the poem night after night. Name all the things and repeat. And remember what the bard always says. The gods send us misfortunes, so we will have something to sing about. 
and our greatest pleasure is to tell each other how we have suffered. The Fates. Three sisters spin the thread that is a human life. The youngest, hands full of wool, piles it on the spindle and spins. The next sister measures the thread. The oldest, she who cannot be turned, cuts the thread where it ends. One sister sings of things as they are. One of what has been. And one of the brilliant future. And humans have a small but certain influence. Imagine a world bound by water, green below and blue to the world's edge, capped by the dome of heaven. Helios' sun flies by day, and at night the luminous stars are set. This is the island of Ithaca, girded by sand, its hills wandering green. Walls of stone cradle our city and garrison our palace and my courtyard where no one may enter without my welcome. And in my chambered rooms above, fifty women, companions and slaves, work in the skilled production of cloth. I, Penelope, am queen. Our men sail the sea, rage like beasts in battle, and practice allegiances and trickery. We women harvest barley, tend the children, and send the shuttles of our looms flying like the fluttering of forest leaves. Long ago, our men sailed to war, and the sea remained mute, save the wail of wind and the wingbeat of birds. When the war was won, we raised our voices in praise. O oh, gentle peace, sole support of we who spend our lives tilling the earth, even our vineyards and fig trees hail thee with delight. But more men died than returned, and my husband, Odysseus, king, has not yet sailed home. tight is the fabric of tribe. I am known here as Odysseus's wife. I am named faithful, prudent, she who waits. I am named dreamer, cunning, intelligent. Sometimes I am power and status. I am always delay after war, interrupted family. And what has happened these twenty years? A woman's work doubles when men are gone. We maintain the harvest, carry grain to the altars, lead processions and rites of sacrifice, our children high on our shoulders, and we work endlessly at our looms. In the great hall below, one hundred and eight young men drink and dance, pushing me to remarry. They feast on my food, fatten on song. Their game is to outweigh me, Penelope. She who waits. I tell them, well, yes, handsome men, but first, in my high ceiling room, I've strung threads on a great timber frame, and weave a tapestry for Laertes, Odysseus, his father, who dies of grief. My cloth is ceremonial, a tapestry of high story, like the one Helen wove at Troy. I began with the pattern of women in procession bearing copper bowls. But now I am at a loss, and I pray for a new pattern to thread an image of my future. Mm-hmm. 
But as blessed moon flies by tonight, freshly washed in ocean's waters, my heart refuses to weave a cloth to prove my dear husband dead. I curse the idea, pull at the stitches to ruin my subtle work, and roll the fabric upward to hide my prevarication. Call it deception and cunning, or call it a room of one's own. Time for a queen to think. Erasure as reparative practice. Because the news varies widely, Phemia sings of Odysseus drowned, but then rumor flies by, whispering of his capture on a nymph-wild island. The sails I once wove are surely sun-scorched and torn, and no one can say where my husband is. So best tell no story, just perform my midnight uncertainty. And the nights repeat and beat like waves with a soundtrack of weeping. And then dawn appears with her red and blooming roses and peace comes again to the island. How the world weaves the seen and unseen connected, an articulation too beautiful for words. There are gods in the trees, in the ashes and streams, in the hands of the wind, in the animals our kin, the lion, the ox, the she-cow, and the birds who bring us signs. Good omens are in the birds towards the right. Good omens are in my girls, my lovely thrushes and doves. And Athena is an owl, and she sings sparrow-like in my mind. Two. Women on Islands, the Sacred Wild. Tonight, as I yank out threads, rumor whispers in my ear of Odysseus blundering, and oars that fly as wings in a sea that appears to have a thousand centers, each center an island where a woman sings and weaves what she herself would be. One would think there's no help for a man unless a woman gives it, and a man might die of what she withholds, love and comfort, food, a healing touch, a map of dangers to come. But then why does the song always turn to distrust, as if woman is cause for every misdirection and delay? First we hear of Calypso of the braided hair and golden shuttle, her forest full of wings, her meadows of celery and violet. It is said, it is she who bends and stalls the years, as if man doesn't stray by himself for a drunken dream of a nymph in the woods.
And then we heard about Circe. Circe, marvelous enchantress, our most ancient priestess, living in the open air, in Ai, the sacred motherwood. Her housemaids are children of the groves, and of fountains that run to the sea. Animals walk beside her, and she sits in a silver chair, singing so the floor resounds. Her song resounds in the utterance of woods, the outcry of wolves, the bellowing of bears and bright-eyed lions, the humming of hills and coombs, the shift and sigh of the shuttle. A man so desires to drink from her golden cup, he transforms to a sobbing, heaving beast, a dreadful sight and fearful. Circe is a wonder. She spins and weaves the renewal of life, weaves the seasons, flowing and joyous as wine. And finally, there are the sirens. are hateful creatures, sweet-tongued prophets, part bird, part women, ravenous on the jagged rocks. But one must think about this. They were turned to monsters when Persephone, goddess Demeter's daughter, was a girl. On the day the earth opened. When Hades was in his chariot, He thundered into springtime, raping Persephone, stealing her to underworld darkness. He left three girls standing there, trembling and stunned in the wildflower field. Demeter gave them wings and told them to fly across the world to find their friend. But the girls, so young, so bereft and stricken, flew instead to these desolate rocks to sing for the death of men. Violence for violence, theft for theft, their intent is surely revenge. They sing to a sailor of his own prowess and fame, and the rocks appear as a paradise. And they abandon ship, and the island stacks high with bones. Angry girls, such angry arrested girls, they know. Nothing is deadlier than a song sung to a man's pride.
Did I dream You dreamed about me Were you there when I was forced up Now I stand alone at the breakers Drinking salt tears from your cup And you sang Touch me not Touch me not Come back tomorrow Oh my heart Oh, oh my heart Breaks from the sorrow And as men are capable of sprouting bristles and wallowing about like pigs without any help from us, we women of Ithaca also must bow in quiet and terrible joy to our goddess of wild earth, what she knows, her wild drink, her dark delirium, her pull. So we gather to honor her in the heady spring, climb into the high grasses, and hidden from men's eyes, dance wild, not sleeping, until in our hunger we crawl about like unreasoning animals, and earth herself trembles, growling and spitting with joy. And then, spent, unknowing, unthinking, we lie in the high-blossomed field, laughing and singing praise as one. Three, in praise to goddess Hestia, and notes on the art of weaving. In 1200 BCE, space was strictly gendered, with statesmanship the domain of men, the home and weaving the domain of women. We women invented the loom, and men know as little of our days of productive making as we do of testosterone on the battlefield. Still... It is said that state-making and weaving are equals in the high arts. Both separate the clotted fibres and rule by composition and discernment. Both measure length and shortness, excess and defect, and judge for signs of excellence in the thing itself and in comparison to the mean. Praise Goddess Hestia, come into this house, having one mind, all wise, draw near, bestow your grace. Like the weaving and daubing of swallows' nests, a home is made. We comb the wool into bundles, soft as a cloud and luminous white. We pile it on the distaff pole and hold it over our knees. We tie twist to the spindle, drop the wool, set it to spin. Between our fingers... How gently we guide the cloud to fall like a river, so it twists into thread. We tie threads to the beam and hang them with weights, strum them like a lyre. We pass the shuttle, one to another, sing to speed our work. In making a tapestry, we place the threads and beat them into the hole. We beat in the things that can never be said. When Philomela was deprived of her tongue, her tapestry told her unspeakable suffering. And Arachne, transformed to a speechless spider, wove cleverly the unutterable abuse of the gods. It is the world we know that teaches us this art. She weaves so impeccably the inexpressible. One night, when long-winged white armed moon flew soundless in her chariot, her orbit full, her rays beaming clear. We all went looking for a sign. Moon pulled up skeins of light through rocks, across hills, and even our faces glowed with subtle fire. 
She broke into a hundred moons, laid down on the riverbed, like coins fractured in liquid, and then trembled whole again. We linked our arms to balance on stones in the night-black waters, a silver garment about our feet. A shadow flew close. We felt its wind. We saw a black silhouette, heard a somber cry, so lifted our faces to praise Athena, owl-eyed, and wondered at her presence among us. But how can we ever weave ourselves into the world of men? My palace is besieged with belligerent suitors drinking from my silver bowls, roasting my pigs, sprawled on my couches, calling loudly for more songs of battles, heroes, glory, such roars, such happiness. I descend by the staircase and stand by the bearing posts that support the great roof to listen Telemachus leans forward, eyes bright, limbs twitching, enchanted by the stories of death and frenzy, the slicing of ears and noses and genitals. I beg for silence. I'm so sick of the spun fibers of heroism. And I am told once again a wailing woman disturbs the story. I am ordered out, out of the narrative, back to my loom. Forwards and backwards, move and counter-move, isn't it always so? The immediacy of grief undoes the glory of conflict. And we cannot unstitch what violence will weave again tomorrow. Tonight I am unraveling. I hold in my hand a solitary thread. I wonder at its fragile weight, its length, its measure, how it wanders amongst and between, woven through the whole, and also a single strong line. The heroes say I, and also the goddesses who live alone say I. And here in my room, where no one may hear but the murmuring sea I, Penelope, call war an unholy sacrifice, unjust Cruel my husband lost, harrowing in battle, wives and daughters stolen from their homes. The birds they sang at the break of day start again, I heard them say. Don't dwell on what has passed away Or what is yet to be Are the wars They will be fought again The holy dove She will be caught again Born and sold And born and sold again The dove is never free Ring the bells that still can ring Forget your perfect offering there is a crack, a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. We asked for signs, the signs were sent, the birth betrayed, the marriage spent. The widowhood of every government Signs for all to see 
can run no more with that lawless crowd while the singers killers in high places say their prayers out loud but they've summoned up a thundercrown and they're going to hear from me Ring the bells that still can ring Forget your perfect offering There is a crack A crack in everything That's how the light gets in We beseech the gods for peace, sacrificing hundreds of oxen and boars with each new moon. The hierophant axes open their skulls and slits their throats. The blood gushes fearfully skyward and our priestesses catch it in a bowl and pour it to stain the ground until our streets reek. We pile altars with still warm lungs and hearts. But the gods just get annoyed. They ask, what is it again this time? Why do you invoke us yet again? Ring the bells that still can ring. And they keep demanding our lives. Forget your perfect offering. Ah, hapless wives of the bronze-clad warriors. Weeping a ceaseless river of tears That's how the light gets in praise of Goddess Nyx and the Murky Night. of goddess Nyx, murky night, child of chaos, sister of dawn. She lay down with darkness and bore her children, brightness and day. And then, lying down with no one, she bore more children, doom and death. The fates, sleep and dream, blame, distress, indignation, deceit, friendship, old age, and hateful hard-hearted strife. Rumor whispers tonight of Odysseus's journey down to the underworld's door, the portal the dead must pass. Only the hero may journey to this dismal realm and return. Odysseus kills a sheep and offers the blood to the dead to drink. And the dead tell more news of blood and death. And Agamemnon warns him, Be wary of your wife. Disguise yourself in your home, as women are one in their shame. Shame? A man who murders his daughter and brings a war bride home. 
Women as one rarely kill a person, but struggle to bring life forth. That underworld land of near death is as familiar to us as a stone-filled street. When I labored to birth Telemachus, I traveled down to that unnameable place. As if pain was a great door opening, an agony a staircase down. And in treading that staircase, earth splits open, and we are stolen to wander in fields dark and gloomy, not dead or alive, beside the rivers of woe and lamentation rivers of fire and divine oaths and the blessed river of forgetting. I sensed rather than saw those stagnant streams and in a murky fog had no company there but formless shapes and no guide but a wailing in the mists which may have been my own My friends held my body, and Odysseus waited above, but I forgot them all. I had left the living world behind. Heroes boast of journeying to that shadowed realm, but women, we do not. It is an unspeakable place, and the soul's existence there is like a miserable dream and hopeless. We are bound to retrieve our children, life's gift. And when we have barely returned, we must feign the child's death, or the jealous gods will steal them. So we slit the throat of a piglet, toss its body to a pit, and speak only softly of the children who thrive. And for love of them, we descend again, and again to those dismal realms. Five, Penelope calls for omens and then Odysseus returns. This morning I sit on the chair of memory, invoking Menoseni, moving my location here and there, seeking a vision of my husband, hoping to remember things anew. I see young Odysseus so handsome, following oxen to cut furrows in the black soil. Once, as I stood in the courtyard door, he strode towards me, speaking words that do not come to me now. I remember him at his game, setting axes in a line and shooting arrows through the loops. I remember weaving his sails. I brought his armor. He laid his hands on my head. It is said we hold a kind of wax under perceptions and thoughts and imprint them upon it. We know a thing as long as an image lasts, but whatever is rubbed out we forget and do not know. The pleasure of our bed I will not forget. His smile, his strong hands, his weight. Our unmovable bed, the immovable fact of husband. Last night I dreamt of my geese that eat from the trough. An eagle swooped down and dug his curved beak into their necks one by one and killed them all. Then the eagle perched on the rafter and told me in human voice to be of fine courage at this good omen that shall surely come to pass. I woke and outside saw my geese eating and felt, although the dream was not true, it might be if I told someone. A story of hope and sorrow. I've heard the bard sing this tale seven times. Odysseus returns, his destruction of the suitors, how Athena orders it, how Melanaeus and Tiresias tell him he must take back what is ours. The eagle is a murderer. Blood will gather blood. I fear for all who live within my house. 
The bard sings of Penelope asleep, as if I could sleep with death so loud below. How is the world opened and things made intelligible for humans? There seems an incorruptible and eternal essence behind and beyond. The sea black as clay, moon blinking darkly, the husband. I am awake as I have always been. A harsh judgment precedes violence. Odysseus is at the threshold. He will give me back what is mine. The man is tall, mad, mean, and good-looking. And he's got me in his eye. When he looks at me, I go weak at the knee. Going like no other guy Cause he's my big bad handsome man He's got me in the palm of his hand He's a devil divine I'm so glad that he's mine Cause he's my big bad handsome man The floor runs with blood. Heads roll in the dust, still framing words. My Odysseus is beast, lion-chested, naked and oiled, his jowls thick with blood. And now he calls my doves and thrushes to the hunter's net and makes them wash the floor of death. Their cries of ecstasy become cries of despair. And finally, silence. How cunning he is. He clears the world of a memory to forget the troubled years so soon we will not know. Call it governing. Warfare allowed in the house. Let the bard sing of the gods who guide us. Let the bard sing a private man's reasons for three thousand years and the sleeping wife oblivious, while in truth her heart shouts with joy. With his rugged good looks, he's got me, got me where he wants to be with his arms so wide he pulls me in by his side he's the kind of guy that does it for me cause he's my big bad handsome man he's got me in the palm of his hand he's a devil divine I'm so glad that Big, bad, handsome This is a terrible hyper-paranoid time of destructive winds and high waters, of codified rules of distrust for those outside our tribe. But Penelope's names remain faithful, cunning, intelligent. Let's imagine she still has some agency. Let's tell her story before her dream and Odysseus's invasion of the home and listen to her quandary. Six. Civilization. Get on with it.
This morning I knelt at the tender vine by curl of sprouting seed. I filled my hands with soil. Telemachus was also a seed in this field, rooted here, running and shouting in joy. With lengthening limbs he clambered over rock, crept quietly to befriend a starling in the road, and remained close to me, told me things. But then, how soon, he crafts a bow, puts it to his shoulder, knows things by instinct and acts as heaven prompts him. How strange is the work of a mother. My son is twenty and he walks away. He races to manhood, feels unsettled, thirsts to know what a man must be. The men of Ithaca tell him, Your father's name is well sung, so you can carry yourself well. And Telemachus protests, He cannot be the son of an oak. He cannot be the son of a story. Tonight he sailed away for news of his father. Bright-faced moon hid her eyes. No one called me. The suitors planned to kill him. The sea is hungry. My heart beats slow. And yet, once again, my son and I are one in thought. We need to hold what is real for what is pride in place of a man. I told the suitors, handsome men, I must complete my tapestry. But now my servant has betrayed me and the suitors force me to finish. So I have finally closed the weave, stitched my solitary thread back into the hole. I will live my life again. The bard sings, my cloth is wide and dazzling, bright as the sun and the moon. This is because it has no picture at all. Like the life, I cannot see ahead. A multitude of birds fly under the sun, but my heart sings a louder chorus. Telemachus begs me to accept a suitor. Or must I return to my father to be sold away again and chance a joyless or abusive home, give praise when a single night has yoked me? And what if heaven plans to send Odysseus home? Will we be again be of like minds? I've heard that war misplaces a man. A warrior returned can grow distant and weep and forget the ways of the house from living so long in the company of men, so long drunk on killing. He may imagine battlefields before his eyes, dazed from tilling the soil with bones, confounded by his place in the world. His city may fail to recognize him, so different his years in understanding, or may imagine his intelligent wife has not changed in twenty years. I heard Odysseus is nearby, floating on the sea, naked and nameless. Rumour says he has washed ashore, nearly drowned but alive. And that innocence finally befriended him, and a king prepares his return. So what will I do? What earth knows? What does earth know? And also, what is its unknowingness? There are gods in the trees, in ashes and streams, in the rough hands of wind and fire, in animals our kin, and in the stars innumerable patterns. So as we leave Penelope here, what is it I'm proposing? The Odyssey as literature of state, as gendered widespread political news, word of mouth for over 500 years, a framework for heroic berserkers, an argument for weapons in the home, and the silencing of all who feel sad. And in Penelope's moment of agency, her turn to the real, 
she weaves us an honest image, her tapestry brilliantly mute, shining because it is true, an epic bright-told truth. The queen defers, she acquiesces and is silenced. As such, our foundation tale. Of course, things have changed since then. Now we're all writing civilization together. But Penelope, if she had had a voice, we might be weeping as one. Seven billion votes for peace. And perhaps we'd be reading more closely the signs of this wild, wise earth, those clear and sobering omens from the animals, trees and the wind. And we might remember the oldest kind of prayer. From before, back then, when we were first trying to invent ourselves. As Dawn's fingers offer blushing peonies, I, Penelope, call the birds, messengers of the gods. I sit outside and call them, call them, quick, quick, my comrades in the air, you numberless tribes who gather and devour the barley seeds. Come, you, swift-flying race that sing so sweetly, who hop about the branches of the ivy and feed on the wild olive berries, who snap up the shark-stinging gnats in the marshy vales, and you, Franklin with speckled wings, and Halcyon who flit over the swelling waves. Oh, tribes of birds! Assemble here and tell me what is to come of this. I beg you, tell me what I must do. I just wanted to say a special thank to the musicians. They worked really hard when I kept changing everything every day. So <laughs> thank you. That was stunning. Um, we have time for one or two questions. Would anybody like to ask a question of the performers? Or how, how you developed? Can you just say briefly how you developed the piece, or the text? And the, yeah, I um, first um, wrote it with um, my husband Douglas Kenning ten years ago as a as a theater piece, and I was just telling the story of Penelope, and he was telling Odysseus. And then this time around, I rewrote it, shortened it into poems, and tried to give it a contemporary context. Um, but I wasn't finished when I brought it to the musicians. So I brought it to them, and we sort of fooled around and fooled around, and uh, especially th- this uh, Julia, because she was speaking the lines, and I kept changing them on her. Um, but we just we just rehearsed and ran through it, and then went, oh, this would go be- better there. Just you know, just talking back and forth, really easy. They're great to work with. Yeah. No, 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 no. I, I started revising it about two months ago, and then, then we really got going about a month ago. And we just had like four rehearsals or something. Like that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for bringing us into the world of poetry and from a woman's perspective. So when I was teaching years ago, um, first-generation college students – um, freshman Odyssey, which they really didn't appreciate. And I spent way too little time talking about Penelope and Penelope's voicelessness. Um, so I just finished reading Circe, I think by Madeline oh, Miller. And the entire time you were talking about Penelope and weaving, I was thinking about the way that she was phrasing Circe's despair and loneliness and weaving to mend the world. And I think that was woven through everything that you were doing tonight, um, is weaving to mend the world by women. Oh, so good. thank you. Thank you so much. That wasn't a question, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's a perfect way to end because I think that 
you know, weaving that we can mend the world this way is, is a, was a great subtext to the whole performance. It was really, really beautiful. It made it made it deep. So thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you for coming. And so ends another event in, at the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion.